there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. I shot an arrow into the air, it fell to earth, I knew not where, for so swiftly it flew, the sight could not follow it in its flight. I breathed a song into the air, it fell to earth, I knew not where, for who has sight so keen and strong, that it can follow the flight of a song? Long, long afterward, in an oak, I found the arrow still unbroke, and the song from beginning to end I found again in the heart of a friend. That's a poem called The Arrow and the Song by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it's a nice short little poem. If you look out there, it's interpreted in a couple of different ways by different people, but it seems to be generally thought to give the reader pause for thought about their actions towards other people. You know, what do we put out there? Sharp, unkind words can be quickly spoken, but for the person who's on the other end of those words, the effect can, as the poem says, last for a long, long time. Whereas putting out kind words, words of encouragement or comfort, again, they can be quickly said and you might not even think about saying them. But those words too can last for a long, long time and enrich someone's being in ways that you might never know. That sharp, unkind word could catch someone at a particularly vulnerable moment and perhaps tap into some insecurity that they already have that will then grow into a lifelong insecurity. But then that kind word might just be what they needed that day to see them through some difficult time that you might not even know they were going through, and they might always remember that too. So obviously, the title of the Twilight Zone episode that we'll be discussing tonight, I Shot an Arrow Into the Air, comes from this poem. So how does it translate into this episode? What What's the meaning behind that? Well, I guess the poem is about karma and the results of your actions, And I guess the episode has that about it too. You know, think carefully about what you say or do. That's certainly there, I guess, in a way. But the poem is more about the long-term effects of words, whereas in the episode, the consequences of their actions come a lot quicker. So So I don't really see the similarity in that sense. And there is a point where, in the opening narration, Rod Sailing says that it's about the time the mankind shot an arrow into the air and again it's not really used in the same way i mean you can look at it like he's shooting an arrow into the air space travel he's shooting that ship up into the air 
but it's not a it's not a malicious act it's not meant to hurt anyone it's a it's a voyage of exploration i guess so so i don't know maybe they're just taking what they need from that title without making it too much of a literal adaptation of the poem if you like they're just taking various elements and using what they want which is fine so there's a few things we can ponder about that but let's take a look at the episode itself not a huge amount of trivia on this one and the story itself definitely has a dramatic arc to it but it's still quite straightforward so we might be in for quite a short podcast tonight but let's see so it's time to head back into the twilight zone with i shot an arrow into the air her name is the Arrow One. She represents four and a half years of planning, preparation, and training, and a thousand years of science and mathematics, and the projected dreams and hopes of not only a nation, but a world. She is the first manned aircraft into space. And this is the countdown. The last five seconds before man shot an arrow into the air. Three, two, one, zero, one. First broadcast on the 15th of January 1960, written by Rod Serling but based on an idea by a lady called Madeline Champion. Now the story behind this is that Serling was approached by Madeline at some sort of social function. They were friends or acquaintances I guess. And what she said to Rod Serling was what would happen if three guys landed on what they thought was an asteroid and it turned out to be outside of Las Vegas. And Rod Serling said, I paid $500 for that one on the spot, but it never happened again. Now the book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic reports it slightly differently, and they even have a little disclaimer saying that the purchase price is mistakenly quoted as $500, but checkbook ledgers and so on tell a different story. And they quote Rod Serling as saying, This was one of the few stories I bought from a story suggestion of a non-professional. The wife of a friend of mine got a basic idea of how incredibly bizarre it would be to have some spacemen land on what they assumed was an asteroid, only to find that they were just a few miles from civilization. Now according to Rod's brother Robert Serling, he paid her with a new refrigerator. Now the episode was directed by Stuart Rosenberg, who has directed some films that have endured quite well in the eyes of filmgoers. Cool Hand Luke, the Paul Newman movie, and he also directed the Amityville Horror. And they're the two that stand out most of all to me. But at this time he was like a lot of other Twilight Zone directors, just a working television director who has credits like The Untouchables and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He'd also go on to direct a couple more Twilight Zone episodes in season 4, one called Alive and another called Mute. Okay, so it's the first manned spaceflight into space, but all doesn't go to plan. I still don't understand how we could have lost it. With all the monitors we have going, we had 15,000 monitors going. The situation would be the same. We've lost contact. She's off her vector path. She's off the radar screen. Gone. Completely gone. So we meet the crew who've crash-landed on a location that they're not quite sure of, but they are assuming is an asteroid of some description. In command is Colonel Donlan, and his surviving crew are Corey, Pearson, and Hudek, who's been seriously hurt and possibly fatally, and he's on the floor, barely conscious. Donlan is writing his log of what's happened, and that's also 
bringing us the audience up to speed but while he's doing that you can see one of his crewmen Corey is very on edge and it's here that the conflict that will impact the episode is established. They're in a hopeless situation, the ship is mostly destroyed, they've no radio and little in the way of water and supplies. Now Colonel Donlan's way of dealing with this is to go back and play everything by the book, fall back on his training and protocol. Corey is more of the attitude that in a situation like this, all bets are off, all that goes out of the window. The radio is gone. The bulk of the supplies have been destroyed in the crash. And as of this moment, there is little certainty that we have been tracked and our whereabouts known. Begging the Colonel's pardon, but this is no time to write your memoirs. Corey, we're in bad shape, that's for sure. But we're still a crew. And as long as we are a crew, there'll be discipline and there'll be protocol. Till I'm lying in a hole there, we'll operate from the book. But it's not just this clash of Donlan's protocol versus Corey's every man for himself approach that causes problems. It's also that Corey doesn't agree with wasting water on Hugh Deck, the man who's close to death on the floor. Now, if you remember the episode The Lonely, you'll remember that great location, Death Valley. It's the kind of place where you can look in every direction and see absolutely nothing. It's a great location, but if you remember that podcast about The Lonely, you'll remember how much trouble they got themselves into because of the heat. They weren't quite prepared for how hot it would be, but this time they were. And in The Twilight Zone Companion, Buck Houghton recalls, The weather was no better, but we knew better how to deal with it. Dietetically speaking, our meals were much more on the salads, very satisfying, but light. Also, we said to the crew, look, We're going to have a two-hour lunch, but we're going to go back to the hotel, serve lunch around the pool, you can go to your room, and don't let's have any of that horseplay about the union and overtime and all that jazz, because you know very well that it's the best thing to do for all of us, and you'll still come out with the same number of pay hours as if we gave you the 45-minute lunch out here, on location, and made you sweat through it and work on till six. And they all said, Hail. Now there's a piece of dialogue here that just really gives the game away, I guess, straight off the bat. It's not one of those clues that you look back on once you've seen the twist and think, ah, but it's a pretty big giveaway and I do wonder if it's a mistake to actually put it in there because it is so blatant. Colonel, that's odd. Size of the sun, I mean. Yes, I noticed. It's hardly any different than we knew it on Earth. Which means that whatever asteroid we've landed on is in the same orbit as the Earth. Well, wherever we are, it's a cinch it isn't heaven. You can count on that. And get one thing in our favor. The air is perfect. There's no radiation count to speak of. I won't go too far into detail with the main body of this story because it is pretty much just, uh, you know, from A to B, an escalation of this situation. Hudek dies there on the floor of the desert and shortly after, Corey and Peterson head out into the desert to see what they can find. The plan is to scout in all four directions and see what they can find, anything that might keep them alive. The thing is, only Corey returns from one of these trips and he gives this story that they split up when they were out there. But Donlan sees through all of this. 
Come on, Corey. I want to know where you left Pierce's body and what you did with him. Come on, Corey, come on! I found him. Face down. He, he must have hit his head on a rock. He was dead. Where did this happen? At the foot of the mountain. I had to change directions coming back. You better change your story. Colonel, I swear to you I didn't touch him. I found him. He was dead. I saw his canteen. I poured his water into mine. I knew you wouldn't believe me. That's why... That's why I told you I hadn't seen him. So Donald marches Corey through the desert looking for Pearson. Lots of scenes of walking until a scene where we see that Pearson hasn't died at all. Donlan finds him, and Pearson tries to tell him something. He draws a cross in the sand. Corey takes Pearson's gun and shoots Donlan. We've already had quite a few scenes of walking up until now, and as Corey goes on, they make quite an interesting choice because, again, it's this extended sequence of walking. So after they had made what they thought was the final cut, I guess they must have noticed this because they added something later on. So as Corey is climbing this steep mountain to see what's on the other side, Rod Serling gives this narration as if he's Corey's nagging conscience. you make tracks, Mr. Corey. You move out and up like some kind of ghostly billy club was tapping at your ankles and telling you that it was later than you think. You scrabble up rock hills and feel hot sand underneath your feet and every now and then, take a look over your shoulder at a giant sun suspended in a dead and motionless sky, like an unblinking eye that probes at the back of your head in a prolonged accusation. Mr. Corey, last remaining member of a doomed crew, keep moving. Make tracks, Mr. Corey. Push up and push out, because if you stop, if you stop, maybe sanity will get you by the throat. Maybe realization will pry open your mind and the horror you left down in the sand will seep in. Yeah, Mr. Corey, yeah, you better keep moving. That's the order of the moment. Keep moving. I actually really like this piece of narration. I've spoken before about how I see sailing as not just a narrator, but almost like an entity from the Twilight Zone. Almost impartial, but not quite. His voice and words will always lean towards the good. I guess you could almost call him a judge, because the bad guys often get their just desserts, like in Judgment Night, when the submarine commander was damned into the Twilight Zone. Or he gives a good man his last reward, like he did with Lou Buckman in one for the angels he's not a threatening presence he just matter-of-factly says this is what happens when you do these things but here it's slightly different and it's this taunting narration pricking at Corey's conscience and I think it really works and then as we know when Corey gets to the top of that mountain he sees that the cross that was drawn in the sand was signifying telephone poles and that he'd been on earth all along I know what you meant. Now I know what you were trying to describe. <laughs> telephone poles. You were trying to draw telephone poles. We've never left the earth. That's why nobody tracked us. 
I think anyone who knows their rod sailing history and who knows their 70s films will have probably thought the same thing as I did watching this recently, and that's Planet of the Apes. I know this episode came first, but you have to think that sailing recycled this ending for Planet of the Apes. It doesn't actually come up in any of the reference books I have here, except that Douglas Brodie does mention it as an observation too, and I'd be curious to see if it's on any of the Planet of the Apes special features where they where they specifically say that Rod Sailing used this episode as a basis. I'd be quite interested to see that. Now, I like the Planet of the Apes films a lot, and I, I personally count the first film as probably the only true Twilight Zone film. Even though it isn't branded that way, it's a Rod Sailing film, and it has that beautifully off-kilter kind of vibe to a very Twilight Zone and and that's one of the reasons why I gravitate to it so much. But this episode as a whole is probably the first episode of the season that I've come away from feeling overall quite negative about it. There are things that I like, you can't really argue with the Death Valley location, it's really epic and I think the way they shot it here makes it seem even hotter than it was on The Lonely. And I do enjoy this kind of story where people are put into situations where they have to face some huge obstacle, but in the end it turns out that their biggest enemy is themselves. We've seen it a lot now. You know, here it's being stranded in the desert, in Night of the Living Dead it's zombies. The outcome is the same. If they'd been able to cooperate, to work together, they'd have all probably walked away from this. I think the cast is adequate. I wouldn't really go any further than that. I think the actor who plays Donlan was pretty good. Very believable as a good man trying to do things by the book and he did have a certain authority to him. Pearson was a bit more wooden but, you know, he wasn't in it too much so it didn't really matter that much. I do have one kind of gripe though and that is when Corey makes a big discovery at the end. I don't think the actor Dewey Martin really has the skill to pull that moment off. Now granted, I think it was probably a challenging moment for any actor to say what he has to say and, you know, put across what he's going through because it's all someone standing alone speaking into thin air and I think that's always difficult. But I think in the writing and the performance it was handled a lot more skillfully in Planet of the Apes. Charlton Heston really sold it but he had less to say and less to do. The image spoke a lot for that but with Dewey Martin I'm afraid not. It just didn't work as well for me. I think as twists go, I mean let's face it I think most of us will have guessed that they were still on Earth. Maybe at the time it was originally broadcast it had more of a power to fool the audience but we can only speculate on that. But that's not really the problem I think there are probably a ton of Twilight Zone episodes that are like that where you can see the ending coming now but that's not necessarily a flaw. The journey itself is usually enjoyable. Now in the book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone Douglas Brodie says that if you see the twist coming it actually just turns the story into a suspense piece where we're waiting for the inevitable. We're waiting to see how far this is going to go before they realise where they are and I think that's a fair enough assessment and I don't necessarily disagree with that but I think the problem is that I just can't believe 
that these astronauts would think they were on another planet. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Fair enough, their equipment was broken, but even with a more simplistic view of what's out in space that they may have had back then, I still can't believe that none of them would have thought, you know what, we're in a place that's the same distance from the sun, in the same orbit as Earth, it has a breathable atmosphere, I think we're probably still on Earth. Even under those circumstances, all of the conflict is probably still valid because they're in a desert and that in itself is a really dangerous situation, depending on what desert you're in and whereabouts in it you are. So these clashes could have still flared up then, but of course it does need some twist or other to make it a Twilight Zone episode, otherwise it's just a story about some guys who crash in the desert and kill each other, which isn't very Twilight Zone in itself. I guess the advantage that Planet of the Apes had is it had the apes to throw us off this thing that doesn't exist in our world that exists on that world and that throws off the scent for a while anyway i think ultimately what it comes down to is i'll suspend my disbelief a lot with the twilight zone sometimes that's the whole point but here it was just a bit too far practical joke perpetrated by mother nature and a combination of improbable events Practical joke wearing the trappings of nightmare, of terror, of desperation. Small human drama played out in a desert 97 miles from Reno, Nevada. USA, continent of North America, the Earth, and of course, the Twilight Zone. So there you go, I shot an arrow into the air, and I'm sitting here on the day that the new... Coincidentally, that the new Planet of the Apes trailer has just come out. Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I'm quite looking forward to it. I am a, I am a fan of the Planet of the Apes films. And like I say, I do count that first movie as the only real, true Twilight Zone movie to me. Now, my apologies that I haven't been able to put out a podcast for the past week. Something always seems to come up. I've been without the internet at home. And you kind of feel like you're in the twilight zone these days when you don't have the internet so unfortunately i haven't been able to put any new content on dimensionxradio.com but now we're back up and running and content's going back on again so hopefully that'll be things back to normal but in my absence we've picked up a lot of new subscribers so if you're a new listener to the podcast hello and i've also got some correspondence that i received while I was away and also some iTunes reviews to say thank you for so let's start with the iTunes reviews hello to London Town Kiwi on UK iTunes leaves a nice review there thanks very much always appreciated that's been on there for a while so sorry I didn't get to you sooner but thanks a lot and then there's Nasa Asan I hope I've got your name right over in the States he leaves a great little review there on US iTunes so thanks for that I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast and another new one from Arcala120. Again, I, I hope I got that right, but uh, thanks for your review. And also, I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast too. And a quick hello to a gentleman by the name of Keith, who emailed me from Malaysia. So it's nice to know that the Twilight Zone travels so well. And it's, it's good to hear from you, Keith. And he's also joined the forum, so he's taken part over there. And that's always great to see 
and he also listens to Suspense and Dimension X over at DimensionXRadio.com. So thank you, Keith. Thanks for getting in touch. Hope to hear from you again. And finally, a great email from a gentleman by the name of Chris in Washington, D.C. He sent me a great email, a lot of kind words about the podcast, so thanks for that. He actually asked a question and he says, Concerning Twilight Zone fans, it seems that most comments and reviews are from people who have been fans of the show and are older and have been fans for decades. I'm in my early 20s and have been a zoner since I was a little kid. What are your thoughts concerning the ages of the average fan today? What do you think keeps it relevant or makes it irrelevant to modern audiences of all ages? That's a good question. I think we need to... I guess if we go to the themes that Rod Sailing was putting into these shows, you know, they're, they're often very universal things that affect us still now and again i guess it comes back to they're just great stories well told and part of it too might be that there isn't really anything like it anymore there aren't any anthology tv shows that really go the distance that i know of i mean tales from the crypt had a good run a few years ago and i also enjoy that show but then there was things like masters of horror that was quite, I thought that was quite hit and miss. There was a spin-off science fiction version of that, but I never saw it anyway. And then there's the revivals of The Outer Limits. I understand that done a good few seasons as well, but these are all a few years ago now. And, you know, where's a new fan of the short television story format to go? You know, there's nothing really quite like it. So when you, when you discover The Twilight Zone and discover the quality that still really holds up I guess I guess that's why it's still relevant I don't know good question you know good question throw it out to the listeners there if you've got any thoughts on that then send it my way and I'll read them out on the podcast so thanks again for the email Chris great email really appreciate it okay so I think that's all from me I will say uh, come and join me in the forums and you will find a link on the website dimensionxradio.com it'd be good to see you like Keith Keith came over and uh, he's been getting into the conversations over there so next time we'll be discussing the hitchhiker what I will say is if you are interested in the history of the show I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it next week but it is an adaption of a radio play and if you go to dimensionxradio.com in the suspense section you can see that there's actually one of the original radio shows of the hitchhiker and that's performed by Orson Welles and it's well worth a listen and if if you want to check that out maybe before we discuss the hitchhiker next time then it's a nice little compare and contrast so highly recommended good episode of suspense and I hope you enjoy it, so I'll see you next time in the Twilight Zone.